Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. 295 questions. That's how many questions Jesus asked in the four Gospels. That's quite a few questions in a small document that size. 295. A couple of weeks ago, we started a series on the questions that Jesus asked and that we should answer. And with 295, I'm not a math major, but uh, if you take off two Sundays a year, one for Christmas, one for Easter, that's about 50 a year. So I'm good for six years at 295. When Jesus used questions, he didn't use them as a technique. Teachers use them as a technique. Good teachers use them very well. But he didn't use them as a technique. He didn't use them to get to know people or people to get to know him. They weren't icebreakers. And it's interesting that when he asked questions, he never, never asked questions because he needed to know the answer. Questions in Jesus' hands were like scalpels in a surgeon's hand. And just like that skilled surgeon can use that sharp scalpel to peel back tissue that's destroyed or decaying, Jesus can use a question to peel back the layers of stuff that accumulates in our lives and minds and hearts so that we can be healed. That's how he uses questions. Now he asks a question, Matthew chapter 9, you may want to turn there. He asks a very significant question here. The story goes something like this. He's approached by two blind men. Now, we know that these men had once seen. They once had the gift of sight. And we know that. We'll see why in a moment, why we say that. But they once had sight, but now they cannot see. They're stone blind. They have lost their sight. And that was not terribly uncommon in that day because the world was a dirty place. And bacteria, germs, things could get in your eyes and compromise your sight. It had blinded these men. And the blindness that they experienced had isolated them from the rest of the world. Because the rest of the world is seeing, and here this man is not, and so now he is isolated from everybody else. But their common misery had brought these two blind men together. And so they're traveling together one day, bumping their way along through life, when somehow somebody tells them Jesus is nearby. And so they begin to cry out after Jesus to get his attention they begin to cry out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. Son of David. That's what they called him. Son of David, they yelled. Now David, Son of David, that's a political title. Because David was a political deliverer. He was the king that delivered the people from all the surrounding enemies that wanted to take over and take over their homes and their territory, and along comes the great King David, and he's the great deliverer. And so when they call after Jesus, Son of David, they're talking about a political deliverer there. Jesus doesn't respond, though. 
These two blind men, they're following hard after him and they're calling for mercy. But Jesus does not respond. In fact, he gives them the cold shoulder. He ignores them completely. And maybe he did not respond because he didn't want to get mixed up in politics or endorse anybody's political expectations of him. And so he let it slide and he kept going, but they kept following. They were persistent. And they were calling after him. Son of David. You know, we could, we could be called somebody's son. If they sought th- thought certain things about us or had expectations of us, somebody looked at you and said, Oh, you're a son of Emiliano Zapata. You're going to help us out here. Or, or you're a son of Washington. You're a patriot. But, but if we were like these men calling after Jesus, son of David, why, we would have to go way back in time. Because David was way back in time. If, if we were like them and we wanted to call somebody a son of somebody, why, we'd have to pick somebody out of the 13th century. We'd have to say to a great writer, oh, you're a son of Dante, the poet, or, or a holy person. You're the son of St. Francis, or the son of Genghis Khan. Or the son of Marco Polo. Let's just see if you're awake. You ready? You ready? Marco? There we go. Son of David. They had something they meant by that. You know, blind as these men are, they know the Bible. The 146th Psalm says, The Lord gives sight to the blind. Let me emphasize that a different way. The Lord gives sight to the blind. These men knew something that people with eyes could not see. That this is not just the son of David here. This is not just a traveling preacher here. This is not just a rabbi that happens to be in our town. He's not just a miracle worker. This is the Lord we can touch here. Because only the Lord gives sight to the blind. They were saying he's a deliverer for sure, but He's going to deliver me from blindness. They lack sight. These two traveling companions, they lack sight, but they had insight, didn't they? They saw what other people didn't see. But Jesus still, he is determined to ignore them. And he ignores them as they trail after him, calling for his name and his attention. He ignores them until they have followed him to the very house he plans to enter. And he lures them into the house by going in himself, and they follow right behind him, still yelling and still calling for mercy. Now, it's probably not Matthew's house. This is Matthew's gospel, but it's probably not Matthew's house. This is the only one of the four gospels that this story of these two men is in. But it's probably not Matthew's house. It's probably Simon Peter's house because they're in the city of Capernaum. And that's Simon Peter's home. And we know that every time Jesus went to Capernaum, he invited himself to Simon Peter's house. Simon Peter's house had become Jesus' house. There's a little tip for you. If you you side with Jesus, if you invite him in, if you begin to travel with him, he has a funny way of making your stuff his stuff. And so he goes into the house and the men come in with him. They're still approaching, and he wheels on them, and he looks at them, and he knows, now you want me to restore your sight. 
And so he says to them, here's the question of the day. Do you believe that I can do this? Do you believe I can do this? Yes, Lord. They don't hesitate. They don't give a flowery introduction or reason why they're worthy of a healing. They don't mention anything like that at all. They don't talk about where they come from or who they know or how they've come to know Him. They just say in answer to the question, Do you believe that I can do this? Yes, Lord! And He touches them and their sight is restored. Now pick the story up. Because from my way of thinking, it goes south from there. Verse 30, And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. Now isn't that odd? But that's his request, and it's a strong request, because it says he sternly warned them. Don't let anybody else know about this, but they went out and they spread the news about him throughout the land. The result was that in the next few moments, he's dealing with a demoniac that can't speak. You know what I notice in this story? I notice, and the blind men show me this, that real followers are persistent. You see what it says in verse 27? And Jesus went on from there, and two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. And they continue to follow him, even though he won't give them the time of day. And they follow him into the house that he goes in. And they still are persistent with their requests. And he finally has to respond. Real followers of Jesus are persistent. They're not here today and gone tomorrow. They're not strong today and weak tomorrow. But they're persistent. They're like that little old lady in Luke 18 who had a lawsuit of some kind that was pending. It was on the court docket, but for some weird reason, the judge would never hear her case. In all probability, it wasn't such a weird reason. He was probably a crooked judge, and she hadn't greased his palm yet. And so her case was not going to be heard. She didn't have enough to spare to bribe the judge, and so her best weapon was persistence, and she kept after it, and she appeared every day and all day, and she kept crying before the judge for her case to be heard, for the judge to grant her justice and her day in court. And finally, Jesus telling the story says that the judge says, all right already, I'll hear your case and I'll grant it in your favor because you are wearing me out with your persistence. But real followers are like that. They're persistent. They don't give up. They don't quit. I tell kids all the time, you've got to realize you cannot be beaten if you don't give up. If you refuse to give up, they cannot beat you. Don't give up. Real followers don't give up. Real followers are persistent. We've got a plaque on, under one of these memorial windows here that's dedicated to a friend who's now with Christ. It was Grandpa's favorite verse. I remember when I would visit him up to the very last visit. He would always end it the same way. His favorite verse. He would, he would quote the Apostle Paul as Paul is writing his swan song. Paul knows that his days are numbered. And Grandpa would always quote those verses. 
I'm ready to be poured out like a drink offering. And the time of my departure is at hand. I fought the good fight. I finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me in that day. And not to me only, but to all those who love his appearing. You see, it's not how you start this thing. It's how you finish. It's how you finish. It's how you fight that fight all the way to the end. Real followers are persistent. I notice that in this story. Another thing I'll tell you I notice is that sincere faith, real faith, sincere faith doesn't fool around. Look at verse 28. And that's where Jesus puts the question to them. He enters the house and the blind men came up to him again. And Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And just that fast they say, yes, Lord. They don't fool around with their answer. They don't hem and haw. You know, I think sometimes that Jesus gets very frustrated with some of his people. I find him in the New Testament saying, very often he says, how long do I have to put up with you people? How long do I have to wait on you? How long do I have to wait while you fool around? How long? I told somebody coming in church today, the longer I'm around people, the more I realize and sympathize with the God of the Old Testament, and I see exactly why he would kill people sometimes. Just get tired of them. But the Lord says to us sometimes, how long do I have to wait? And that's Jesus' frustrated cry to many people. How long until you grow up? How long until you assume responsibility as a believer? How long? How long until you take me seriously? How long until you take my advice? How long until you win souls? How long until you open your mouth? How long until you make just one disciple? How long until you take a risk and step out in faith? How long? How long? And we delay, and we shuffle, and we excuse make. But delaying and shuffling and making excuses is not the mark of sincere faith, is it? A quick yes, that's a mark of sincere faith. Sincere faith doesn't fool around. I noticed that, and I'll tell you what else I noticed. I noticed that from this story, these two men are blessed, and I notice that blessed people, people who are blessed by God, very often do not listen to what he asks them to do. So what verse 39 tells us, 31 tells us, and they went out after he said sternly, see that no one knows about this, and they went out and they spread the news, they broadcast it. They threw it out there for any and all to hear. Whether you were interested or not, you were going to hear their story. They spread the news about him throughout all the land. He didn't want them to do that. Blessed people don't listen. I can, I can completely understand their excitement. They can see now. And I can even understand their excitement that causes their disobedience. I can, I can appreciate that. Their disobedience, though, is going to cause Jesus problems because every time Jesus asked people not to talk about it, and they did talk about it, they did broadcast it, it would always cause Jesus problems every time people did that. The fact is, this little snippet story of a blessing, an incredible blessing, sight restored, it unfortunately ends on a note of disobedience, doesn't it? 
You know, there's a reason why the center of gravity of world Christianity a number of years ago, centuries ago, shifted away from Europe. Europe was once a Christian land. And you go there today and it's still churches everywhere. They're empty, but they're everywhere because it was a Christian land once. But years ago, the center of gravity for world Christianity shifted away from Europe. And it's now shifting away from America. I think I know why. We are a blessed people. You, you could make the argument that no people on the face of the earth have been blessed like American Christians have been blessed. We are free here like we're not free anywhere else. And we've been allowed to experiment and do and build and grow and prosper like we have nowhere else. Nobody has been blessed like Christians in America. You, you would think, you would think that Christians like American Christians so blessed would be so faithful. You would think that nothing would keep Christians so blessed from God's house or the closet of prayer or, or telling and serving, but you would be absolutely wrong about that. To find that, you have to go to China. You have to go to North Korea. You have to go to the heart of Africa to find that kind of devotion in any kind of numbers. We are blessed, you see. And any shining, shiny object is enough to keep most believers in our city away from God's best. It's a sad fact, but too often the most blessed people have the most trouble listening and obeying. There are too many people that take the blessing and run. Well, that's what I notice about this story. But if you look a little bit deeper, this is one of those stories that will teach you if you let it. It'll teach us about genuineness, being real. Because as the story opens and he asks the question before the healing comes down, their genuineness is tested. How real are they in their heart? How real is their need? That's why Jesus' question, do you think I can do this? He's testing them. He's testing their heart. He's testing their need. Now just stop. For a second and think of some of the things that are happening to you think of, think of some of the crossroads that you keep coming to in life is Christ testing you look look beyond the annoyance factor look beyond the discomfort look beyond the anguish of the problem is it a test maybe is it a test of your genuineness, how real you are? Is it a test like he administered when he was risen by the Sea of Galilee? He administered a test to Simon Peter. He said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Three times he asked that question. Three times that test. And it was a test to see if he was real. 
Do you really love me? If so, if he's testing you, how are you doing? When Jesus asks, do you believe I can? Is it possible that he's testing you to see how big, not how big your faith is, but to see how real your faith is? This, heart, this story will teach us too about how a heart can respond. Their heart responds, yes, Lord. Do you believe I can do this? Yes, Lord. They could not have answered that question and have their answer be any shorter than that. Yes, Lord. It couldn't have gotten any shorter. couldn't have gotten any quicker. That's how the heart should respond. Because sincerity, listen, needs very few words. But insincerity needs plenty. That's why here we are in the middle of another eternal election season. And it's words, words, words. Sometimes I think, oh God, get this thing over or poke my eardrums out. It's words, words, words. Why? Because there's so little sincerity. Insincerity requires plenty of words. But sincerity needs very few words. You wonder why their answer was so brief? Eagerness made it brief. We, we can't wait for the answer, Jesus. We can't wait for the healing. Do you believe that I can do this? Yes, and, and we can't wait another minute. Hurry up, will you? Heal our eyes. Before the service, I had a, <clears throat> a bottle of cranberry juice. I guess um, people of a certain age should drink this stuff, so I did. Maybe if I'd drunk more of it when I got of a certain age, I wouldn't have to drink so much of the nasty stuff. But, but it says ocean spray on it. I think some bright boy advertiser thought that would make me want to drink it ocean spray. But as I looked at that, I thought, you know, I could, I could take a drive this afternoon over to the coast. In fact, I probably should take a drive over to the coast. Now that I think about it, the last few days I've been extremely good. In fact, I've been remarkably good, and I probably deserve it. But I could take a drive over to the coast, and I could, I could swim out or paddle out or get out there somehow. And I could open this up and I could fill it up with the Pacific Ocean and the Pacific Ocean would take the shape of that bottle. If you pour melted gold into a mold, it takes the shape of that mold, doesn't it? And faith is the same way. Faith is exactly the same way. Faith takes the shape of the container it's in, too. So the question before us is, what does faith look like in you? What's faith look like in me? If we have faith, our heart response should be a simple one. Yes, Lord, I know you can do it. And then there's this loving touch. That will teach us something too. It says, then he touched their eyes. 
how meaningful touch must be to a blind person, right? 1980, the summer of 1980, I, I was assigned to a church in East Aurora, New York, western New York, near Buffalo, for a ministerial internship, and I, and I served that church for the summer in a little bit. It was a great experience, and one of the people I met was blind. He had a wife, he had a little boy, five years old, and I loved going out to visit them. They lived in an old farmhouse. They weren't farmers, but they lived in the old farmhouse. And I loved going out to visit them, and he would show me how he read Braille. He read Braille just as fast as you and I can read a printed page. And he explained to me how it worked, and I never did get the hang of it, but he explained it to me, and it, I was fascinated by that, and, and, and he was showing me a new thing that he had gotten enrolled. They, he, he would call up a service and say, I want to read such and such a book, and they would assign somebody to put it on a tape, and then they would send him the reel-to-reel, and he would put it on his player. This was even before cassette tapes. And so I enjoyed going out to visit that family but I was always drawn to how he responded to touch, especially the touch of his little boy. When he would be at the table and the little boy would help him to get his bowl or help him to get the spoon or just lay his hand on his dad's hand or on his neck, that dad responded to that son's touch differently than he did anybody else's. Because a loving touch tells you something, doesn't it? Without words. And the Lord's touch lets us know some things too. His touch is presence. It's all about presence. And His presence says, I'm here to help. When He reaches down and He touches our lives, He's saying, I'm here and I'm here to help. It's got to do with presence, His touch does, but it's also got to do with power, doesn't it? When He touches us at the point of our need, He's saying that He has all of the power and all of the resources to help you. It's kind of like a, a hand on the shoulder. And the greatest power comes when He touches saying, My peace I give you, not as the world gives. My peace I leave with you. And he does that with a touch. But, but his touch is something else entirely because he's got the touch of a prompter. You know what a prompter is? A stage prompter that actors use in case they forget a line. There's somebody off stage that will stage whisper their line so they can hopefully pick it up and get back in. The best case I ever saw of that was at a large church here in town, a really large church some years ago, they had pulled out all the stops and spared no expense to put on a huge, big blowout of an Easter presentation with animals and all kinds of sets and costumes and music and, and effects and lighting, and, and it was going to be a spectacular event that would be crowned at the very end with, guess what, the resurrection from the dead. Jesus was, was slated to come out of that tomb at just the right moment when the, the, the sound of the music was at its highest and that stone would remote control be moved out of the way and there would be blinding lights 
that would shoot out from that tomb and Jesus would come out risen. That was, that was going to be the big moment. And so we sat there and we watched and the, the music began to build up to that great moment of resurrection and the tomb snapping open. And the music begins to build up. Boom, 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 boom. And then here's the moment. The stone didn't move. And the guards are looking at each other like we were here for some reason. And so the conductor of the orchestra, he, he thought on his feet, okay. So he started over and he started the piece again. And the orchestra's playing. So it gets to that part again. Bum, 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 bum. Stone did not roll. That's when the prompter, from where I was sitting, I could see her. She came out from behind one curtain slightly, and she had her clipboard in her hand, and she whispers to the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, move the stone. <laughs> and so they start over again, the bomb, 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 and the Roman soldier takes his toy spear, and he stabs it into the papier-mâché rock, and he slings it aside like it's nothing. Kind of ruined Easter for me, I'll tell you. Well, that's what the prompter does. Well, that's a stage prompter. But Jesus acts in the role of a prompter very often. He does that with his touch. That's what he's doing here. As he touches these two blind men, he touches their face. It stimulates their faith. And when he touches us, he prompts us to believe for more, you see. And as he touches them, he says, be it according to your faith. Now, he doesn't mean by that what the TV preachers and the faith guys twist it to mean. Be it according to your faith. Their healing will not be based on how much faith they have or a measure of faith. How much you have faith, it doesn't really matter to Christ how much you have. I know that because he says if you just have faith that is no bigger than the grain of a mustard seed, not a mustard seed, which is not a big thing to begin with, but just a grain of of a mustard seed. If you have just that much faith, he says, you will be able to say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the heart of the sea. So it's not a question of how much. The healing is not based on how much or a measure of faith. We, we say, oh, I, I, I just need more faith. That's all. I need my faith to be built up. If I had as much faith as you or if I had as much faith as some other giant of the faith, that is nonsense, according to Jesus. Their healing was not based on their measure of faith, if faith can even be measured. Their faith may not have been great, and yours may not be great, and my faith may not be much either. But these two men are healed in response to their faith. Not how much faith. I believe. I believe you can do that. I believe you'll help me. It's, it, it, it's, it's not how much or the size of our faith. The only requirement 
is that however much we have, or however little we have, that it be directed toward and fixed on Christ. Do you believe I can do this? Yes! That's all it took. And then, and then this story teaches us this, that miracles happen. We forget that. We forget that everything doesn't have to go according to the rules. That He doesn't play by the rules. If you would approach Christ and say, hey, you kind of think outside the box, His response would be, there's a box. And we forget that. He isn't bound by any rules. He's not bound by conventional wisdom or the law of averages or how it always goes. There are no limits on God or His wisdom or His power or His resources or His cleverness or how creative He can be to meet your needs. To respond to that little bit of faith that you have. He's not bound by anything. Do you believe I can do this? You have chronic health problems. Do you believe he can take care of that? There are fault lines in a relationship that you have, and it's breaking up. And Jesus says, do you believe I can do this? You have a friend or family member who's trapped in some kind of addiction. Or maybe you feel trapped in something. And Jesus comes along and says, you believe I can do this? There's the drumbeat of money problems. It's what you get up to, that's what you go to bed with. And he says, do you believe I can do this? There's that hurt that's deep and it won't go away. There are expectations that things will change and they never seem to change. And Jesus says, do you believe I can do this? Now back to those two men and their flagrant disobedience to Christ. Forget why they did what they did. Why did Jesus ask them what he asked them? Why did he warn them the way he did and said, don't, please, I don't want you to go out and tell anybody. Because when they did go out and tell somebody, they likely added to Jesus' troubles. But people adding to Jesus' troubles, that's not new to him, you see. He's called the man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. People don't realize it, but our actions mean something to Him. They really do. We we know that the Lord asks us to do certain things, but we blow it off. And we end up saying, oh well, it doesn't really matter if I pray. It doesn't really matter if I talk to somebody else about the Lord. It doesn't really matter if I absorb His Word on a regular basis. I had good intentions, but I didn't do it. And it did. after all, it doesn't really matter. It's not going to change anything. It doesn't matter if I give faithfully. It doesn't matter if I attend faithfully. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It will all work out in the end. You're thinking... If you think like that, that it doesn't matter to Jesus, then your thinking is not Christian, your thinking is pagan. You're not a believer in Christ, you're a believer in luck. Now he's not worried though about somebody adding to his grief in life. When he asks these guys not to go out and tell, the reason he asks them to do that 
is he's more interested in the individual than he is in the crowd. He's more interested in one. He's more interested in you. Just you. I can prove it. I can prove it from the Bible. John 17, it's Jesus last night on earth and he's praying. And we get a glimpse of some of the things he prayed about. And how he framed his words to the Father. And at the end of the prayer in 1721 of John's Gospel, he prays a remarkable prayer. To understand that prayer that he prayed that night, you have to go back into eternity past. We don't know how long past, but a long time. And you have to go back to that point in time when the decision was made to create. When God decided, even before He created, He decided, you know, I think I'm going to create. Within Himself, He decided, I'm going to make things. I'm going to set a universe spinning into motion. I'm going to have a world, I'm going to populate it with people and animals and plants and fish and all sorts of things. I'm going to start stuff. I'm going to create. God did that within Himself. And he had a very personal reason. He had a reason that's all his own for creating. His his reason went something like this. Within himself, everything is perfect. Father, Son, and Spirit, we don't even really know what that means. One God, but there are three personalities there, and they, they love each other. And it's perfect. And it's perfect harmony. And it's a perfect relationship of perfect love. And God said within himself, this is wonderful. And the only way we can think to make it better is share it. And that's why we're here. That's why this is all here. So he could share what he had within himself. Now people begin to get all kind of screwy ideas about God along the way. That He's angry. That He's mad at me because I've failed. That's not true. But all those wrong ideas and myths about God and mythical gods, they, there got to be so many of them and they were so, even the best of them, so far off track that God says, I've got to correct this thing myself. And so he sends his son to pull back the curtain and say, you've got it all wrong. Here's what God's like. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. That's what we're like. And then on that last night, he prays, Father, let them, you, me, all of us, let them be in us. He knows what we're made of. He knows better than we do how bad we are. He knows all the secrets. He knows where all the bodies are buried. But he still says, we want you in what we've got. That perfect love and harmony that somebody has described as the perfect dance. 
where each partner makes way for the best in the other. He wants us in what they have. He doesn't want to dominate us. He wants us to have what they have. Doesn't that blow your mind? It's not just a trip to the altar, is it? It's not just a mea culpa, I'm guilty, please forgive me, wash away my sins. It's that, but it's a whole lot more than that. He wants us to have what they have. So here's the reason that all of the religious hucksters are wrong. It doesn't take more faith. It doesn't take tons of faith. It doesn't take super faith. It doesn't take seminars on faith. It doesn't take a lot of faith. It doesn't take a certain kind of faith. It just takes a tiny bit. And it only takes a tiny bit to see Him work in our lives because of where you stand. You stand in Him, not outside Him. You are in Christ. We are in them. He's removed us from the domain of darkness, the Bible says, and now we live in the new kingdom of light. So two blind men came to Jesus wanting to be healed. And he said, do you believe I can do this? I want the musicians to come back. We're going to sing a chorus that says, only believe. Only believe. All things are possible. Only believe. A moment ago when I rattled through a list of things that that may be your thing. Chronic health problems. A relationship that's broken up. Can't seem to get it back. Somebody you know that's trapped in some kind of addiction or, or some kind of trap that you're in. That somebody's put you in. That your experiences have put you in. It may be that drumbeat of money problems that hammers morning, noon, and night. Maybe a hurt that won't go away. It may be a, an expectation that never going to come to pass. Jesus wants to grab you <laughs> on both sides of your head so you can look straight at Him and say, do you believe I can do this? You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.